Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today, we're talking about the healing potential of food. When Mickey Trescott was diagnosed with two autoimmune diseases, she found that making changes to her diet helped her manage her illnesses. She's since become a certified nutritional therapy practitioner and built her practice, her blog, and her first two books around helping others make changes that can help them manage their illnesses, specifically through the Autoimmune Protocol, or AIP. Mickey's new book, The Nutrient-Dense Kitchen, aims to help all of us add more nutrient-rich foods to our diets in the most delicious way possible. We've got a link to Mickey's website in the show notes in case you want to learn more about the AIP. And as always, if you visit booklarder.com and enter the code PODCAST at checkout, you can get 10% off this and other books featured on the podcast. Here's Mickey Trescott and the Nutrient-Dense Kitchen. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for coming out to Book Larder. And thank you so much to Book Larder for having me. It's really fun to be here again. Some of you guys might know that I used to live in Seattle. So I have some of my friends here from back in the days. And uh, I love the city. So it's really great to uh, be here talking to you guys today. I'm going to give you guys a little bit of heads up of how I'm going to do my talk. First, I'm going to tell you guys how I came to write my newest book, The Nutrient Dense Kitchen, by way of a pretty brief version of my health story. So I came to teaching people about food through my own journey with illness. And I'll tell you a little bit about. And then I'm going to give you some really easy tips for how you can eat like a Nutrivore. And eating like a Nutrivore is something that I think applies to anyone, no matter what diet they're on, whether they're eating a standard American diet, a paleo diet, an autoimmune protocol diet. It's something that, you know, parents of children need to take seriously, women who are trying to conceive or carry pregnancy old people, young people, super sick people like I was. And I'm going to give you guys some action items that you can actually go from here. You could actually drive yourself to the grocery store and and start putting this stuff into practice as soon as you leave the store. So you have that to look forward to. And then I'm also going to take questions at the end. So if you guys have any questions as I'm talking, put them in your pocket and then I will survey the room and that's what we're going to do. Before we start, I just want to see how many of you have heard of the autoimmune protocol. Okay, like 80% of you. How many of you have never heard of the autoimmune protocol? Okay, there's a couple. Okay, great. So that's just how I know um, to gauge this talk. So I came to the autoimmune protocol, which comes up in this book, which is my first book, The Autoimmune Paleo Cookbook. And I came to AIP about eight years ago now when I started having my own personal health crisis. So I was kind of your typical 20-something Seattle girl, didn't own a car, rode my bike everywhere, was really healthy, really active. I was vegan. I, I really thought that a plant-based diet was the bee's knees. I thought it was going to be the thing that kept me healthy and free from heart disease and cancer for the rest of my life. And then I started having some really 
insidious, quiet symptoms that then just kind of progressively got louder and louder. So things like my fingertips started going numb and I thought that maybe it was because I was biking a lot and I was holding my wrists a certain way and, you know, I was cutting off a circulation. And I used to have this really long, thick hair that was like down to my belly button. And over the course of a year, half of it fell out. And I thought, oh, well, I guess, you know, your hair sheds when you get older, right? I started having trouble sleeping. I started having anxiety for the first time in my life. And the thing that really got my attention was that I was cold all the time. I was freezing. My hands were like ice cubes. When I got in bed at night, I had to wear two layers of socks. And then I got an electric blanket because I just could not get warm. And I went to the doctor, um, doctor number one of doctor number six, until I actually figured out what was going on. And I explained all my symptoms. And all of these doctors in a row basically gave me some version of, you look fine. You look normal. It's probably anxiety. Maybe it's depression you look fine, you can't actually be suffering from the symptoms that you're describing, maybe it's all in your head, and we'll check you out, meaning they'll look at me, and it went nowhere. So eventually, I started to do my own research on the internet, Um, I started to inform myself, I started to notice that my symptoms were trademark autoimmune thyroid disease symptoms, started asking, you know, could it be my thyroid? No, you're not overweight, you know, you can't be skinny and have a thyroid problem, Um, let me tell you. (laughs) You definitely can. And they told me that I couldn't actually be experiencing what I said I was experiencing. So again, no testing, no follow through. And it wasn't until I was really desperate and really assertive that I actually got a doctor to test me for autoimmune disease. Of course I had it. When he told me, I was like, "Uh uh-huh, now what? And then I was told that my lab tests were normal and that I didn't need any treatment. And the only thing I needed to do was go gluten-free because at the same time, I also found out that I have celiac disease. So I was diagnosed with two autoimmune diseases in the same day. I was told to just keep doing what I was doing, which then three months later led to severe neurological problems. If I dropped something on the floor, I couldn't pick it up without falling over. I lost feeling on the left side of my body. That numbness that was in my fingertips um, started to radiate up my arms with severe nerve pain that kept me from sleeping. And I had had it at that point. I I just wasn't getting any answers. And I figured that I was the only one that was going to make the next step to actually figuring out what was wrong. So I discovered the autoimmune protocol. I'm not going to go into depth because you guys are pretty educated about it, but I wrote this book in the aftermath of healing myself. Of course, you guys see the end story. I don't need to tell you what happened, right? Um, I'm here in front of you today, and I recovered my health and learned how to live well with my two autoimmune diseases. I don't use words like remission and cure because I think they give people false hope and they don't paint a realistic outlook of what it looks like to actually live with a lifelong chronic illness. It's it's not as easy as, you know, being sick and then well, you know, where is that line? Some sometimes you you ebb and flow and go back and forth. The autoimmune protocol is an elimination diet process where you whittle out all of the things that potentially could be inflammatory triggers, really um, foods that are low on the nutrient density spectrum and foods that feed pathogenic bacteria and dysbiosis in the gut. For people with autoimmune disease, our immune systems are in our guts. So this is why this stuff works. And it can be a really great way to fine tune what your healing diet looks like. Once you experience some healing, you reintroduce foods one at a time, you land on this perfect diet that is just absolutely customized to you, has nothing to do with your disease. You know, Mickey with Hashimoto's ends up on a diet that's different with then Jane with Hashimoto's. And that's part of the really beautiful thing about the process. So 
What led me to write The Nutrient Dense Kitchen, so the new baby, is that I was a part of this AIP movement in the very early days. There were six of us blogging together. We became really close friends. We were sharing our experiences. But something that was a part of AIP in the very beginning from the research and the theory was this concept of nutrient density. So part of it was, yes, we're removing a bunch of inflammatory foods and a bunch of foods that people might be sensitive to, but we're also adding in extra nutrient dense foods. So back then, everyone was eating organ meats. Everyone was drinking bone broth instead of coffee in the morning and using it in their meals. Everybody was eating cold water fatty fish. These weren't unusual or kind of like the next level things. This was the protocol. And so in the last six or seven years since the inception of the autoimmune protocol, it has grown by leaps and bounds. I mean, I get told by people that have been put on the autoimmune protocol by their doctors, which I never ever would have considered when I started this. And even out of that, some doctors are even studying the autoimmune protocol. And um, like two years ago, we were contacted to do an IBD study for people who had Crohn's or colitis, who had a average disease duration of 19 years. They were on biologic medication that failed. They, these were very sick people and they were in clinical remission. 73% um, of them were in clinical remission in five weeks for the IP. So the medical system is actually like, wow, why does this work? How does it work? We're kind of curious. And in that explosion has come the loss of the nutrient density, which I think is the piece that is actually more impactful over the long term than pulling out those inflammatory foods and those triggers. And the reason why it gets lost is because it's really easy for people to implement something like a healing diet by subtraction, by taking out everything that they, they know they can't or they shouldn't have, but without actually putting a conscious effort into what they are having. So, you know, a, a fully compliant Elimination diet might look like someone eating chicken breast and broccoli and coconut oil or spinach, you know, rotating in a few vegetables, rotating in a couple proteins, um, maybe, you know, some olive oil and some coconut oil, sprinkle in some fats and salt. That's technically AIP, but that's not actually a nutrient-dense diet. That's something that is giving enough nourishment for someone to, to get through their day, but it's not actually giving them enough to actually fuel the healing process. So... The Nutrient Dense Kitchen was born out of the idea that I just really wanted to reassert to the community that nutrient density is as important, if not more important, than the other pieces because actually nutrient density applies to everyone. Eating like a nutrivore is the concept that I put forth in the book. It basically means if you're a nutrivore, you're someone who takes nutrient density really seriously. You want to eat local and in-season foods, and you just want to make sure that every time you're eating, you're maximizing your opportunity to get nutrition. So I'm going to break down all of those parts um, in this talk. So there's four ways you can eat like a nutrivore. The first one is nutrient density. So you've heard me say this word a bunch, but you're probably like, what the heck does that even mean? So we're really taught to prioritize the concept of calories over nutrients when we look at food. When you pick up a food off the shelf at the store, you flip it over, calories are the biggest thing at the top, right? Because we're conditioned to think that calories are just like gas in the tank. You put fuel in the car, when it runs out, you put some more in, you put too much in, you gain weight, you don't put enough in, you might lose some weight. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> Hormones are the thing in the middle that kind of like screw with all the knobs. Um, but really, calories are the thing that we're really trained to focus on. Nutrient density is actually the flip side of calorie density. So instead of looking at how much energy that's going to give you, it looks at how many nutrients are in a food. So vitamins and minerals are nutrients that 
components that you guys are probably familiar with, but there are some other components of nutrient density that a lot of people don't consider like fiber, having a diverse array of fibers to actually feed our gut flora, which actually do a lot of things to maintain our body's health and prevent chronic disease. That's a nutritious element of food. Phytonutrients. We don't have any quantifiable measure of phytonutrients, um, but I'm going to talk about them a little more um, later on in the talk. But they're compounds that plants produce that actually have bioactive components when we eat them. They can help us manage inflammation. They can help give us energy. They can stimulate different pathways and processes in the body. And these are in foods. These are in plants. So when you're looking at a nutrient-dense food, it's not black or white. It's not yes or no. People love black and white. They love yes and no. They love lists that can't have, can't have. Nutrient density doesn't really fit into that. That's why I self-published this book. And because every publisher I talked to was like, what is this? You have to tell people what to do. <laughs> and so what I'm, I'm doing is I'm not telling you what to do. I'm teaching you the concept. And then you can learn how to implement it, which is harder, but I think more productive. So with nutrient density, you're looking on a spectrum. Let's take sugar. Sugar is probably, you know, cane sugar, the least nutrient dense thing you could possibly eat. It's literally liquid or solid calories, depending on whatever form it's in. But if you compare it to something like maple syrup, maple syrup is nutrient dense. Maple syrup has minerals. Maple syrup has vitamins. Maple syrup is the least processed. It, you know, came from a tree. It wasn't refined in some cases. So I'm not saying that you need to just go eat maple syrup, but I'm trying to show you guys that, you know, there are choices that we make, ingredients that we use in our kitchen every day that, you know, the next step for you might be saying, okay, there's this food that I'm eating that is just a filler and it's not nutrient dense. Where's the next step for actually increasing that nutrient density? In the same vein, you could take a protein that you you would throw on a salad at lunchtime. We all eat lunch. Lunch is usually a meal that, you know, is kind of fast. You know, you have to either pack it for work or put it together fast. Chicken breast is something that, you know, you can cook a roast up some chicken breast during the week, shred it up, throw it on a salad. That's a really quick and easy batch cook lunch. What if you put sardines on that salad? So there's a big difference in the nutrient density of four ounces of chicken breast and four ounces of sardines. I'm not saying chicken is bad, <laughs> but I am saying that the sardines really maximizes your potential to get as many nutrients as you can. The sardines are cheaper, they're easier, you don't have to cook them. You know, if you get them canned in olive oil, a lot of times you don't even have to use any oil on your salad. It's the oil that's in the can with the fish has the fat soluble vitamins that are so important. I have this chart in the book and there's a few charts like this that just help you guys demonstrate that spectrum. So four ounces of chicken breast, all you need to see is there's no color in this column. So the, the lightest color is 50% of RDA, and that's darkest green color is exceeding the RDA. So that's how much of a nutrient you need in one given day. So by eating chicken breast, you get half of one of these 15 nutrients. By eating sardines, you get almost all of your calcium, your iron, your phosphorus, selenium, B12, and omega-3 fats. So not only are those great nutrients that everybody needs, but a lot of them are very hard to get in the diet and most people are not getting enough of them in the first place. So just by eating those sardines on your lunch, it kind of doesn't matter the nutrient density of your, your protein that you would have for breakfast or dinner as much because you've already topped yourself up, right? 
I just want you guys to understand it's more about the comparison than it is about judging every single food in like a yes or a no. You work in some, some sardines, you work in some liver pate, which I'll talk a lot more about and you can try tonight if you're a skeptic. If you work in, you know, colorful fruits and vegetables, you know, it's not all about organ meats. If you work in your broth, if you work in some fish and shellfish, especially the cold water fatty fish, these are the, the most nutrient dense foods and you don't have to eat them every single day or every single meal, but you should eat them every week or at least every other week. And I think that you'll see your health be elevated a lot just because of that extra nutrition. So the first concept is nutrient density, just learning how to compare different foods. I want to show you guys one more chart. This chart that starts on page 27 has a listing of every vitamin and mineral, and then all of the foods that are the highest good and fair source. So any foods in the fair source category, if you're only relying on those foods for that nutrient, you gotta eat them every day. If you're gonna rely on the good source foods, you can eat those a couple times a week. And then the foods in the highest source category, you only have to eat those like once a week. Those are the foods that are just so potent in whatever you need that you need, don't need to eat it all the time. And just kind of looking through this table, you'll notice things like, oh, there's beef liver on that nutrient and there's beef liver on that nutrient and there's beef liver on that. And then you start to go, wait a minute, but like I'm eating spinach every day. Spinach is, is a great nutrient dense food, but it's not gonna get you anywhere close to the amount of iron that you need, even if you eat it every day. So, so yeah, I meant for this chart to just really help you guys see. If you're on any supplements, this is a great resource. I really believe in starting with food before supplements because supplements are expensive and food is also expensive, but often our bodies can actually assimilate nutrients better in food than they can in supplements because they come all packaged up with the cofactors that they need to be digested. Nature kind of knows best. And there are some situations where supplements are helpful, but I think in the long term, it makes a lot more sense to try to get that nutrition from the diet first. Now that we've talked about nutrient density, the second thing that Nutrivores do is they consider quality when they procure their ingredients to cook. So of course there's a vast spectrum of quality in our food supply, but the things that I want you guys to think about, I have a great example for meat. So pork is the meat that actually has the potential to be the healthiest and the unhealthiest just based by based on whatever that pig was eating. So for the book I came across a study that was done Two years ago, uh, a farm in Missouri that raises pigs took three batches of their, their little baby, baby pigs and they fed one batch conventional feed, which is grain. They fed the second batch 50-50 grain and forage, which when they forage, they're out you know, roaming around eating whatever they can find. Um, pigs are omnivores. And then the third batch, they put them out on 100% forage. And then when the pigs were of age, they slaughtered a bunch of them, sent the meat all to the same university for sampling, and they did a breakdown of all of the nutrient content of the different groups of meat. And what they found was that the pigs that were fed the conventional diet, so basically just grain, they had a 30 to 1 omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. So some of you guys might be like, what is that gibberish? Omega-6 is a long-chain omega-3 fat, which is pro-inflammatory. So our bodies have two modes. Inflammation isn't always bad. So, you know, you get a bee sting, swells up. You actually want that inflammation because it means healing stuff can get into the tissues. But it's when the inflammation stays too long that it's a problem. So then you need the anti-inflammation system to kind of come in and take over. And that's where the omega-6 
push that pathway. So there's two components to fats. Our standard American diet is 30 to one. That's what we get from eating processed foods, from processed oils. It's because the, the seed oils in grains and in seeds and in all the food products that are made from them are very high in omega-6. Feed them to pigs, the pig's fat is very high in omega-6. This is pro-inflammatory. They actually found that the pigs that ate forage were a four to one ratio. These were the same breed of pigs raised on the same farm and that ratio difference is shocking. It was like chemically a different food almost and actually an anti-inflammatory food. When they do estimates of what our ancestors, what the fat ratio was in their diets, it was close to three to five to one. Um, it was a range depending on the region of the world they lived in. So part of the theory of why our modern diet is so inflammatory is just because we're taking in so many of these pro-inflammatory fats and just by the meat that you choose, you can affect the fat content that's going in your body. So it's not pork, good or bad, black or white. It's what kind of pork, right? Same thing applies to beef. Most of us are familiar with the benefits of grass-fed beef, raising them on grass, also finishing them on grass. A lot of farmers get tricky and try to fatten them up the last minute on grain. I really recommend talking to your farmers in all the cases and buying directly from your farmer because then you really know what you're buying. But quality also applies to seafood. You know, where you get your seafood, where the water that it's fished in affects all of that part of the process. And um, for anyone that's concerned about mercury, I usually get a mercury question. The smaller the fish, the better. So that's actually another benefit to sardines. I always joke that sardines need a new marketing person because <laughs> I think they are one of the most nutrient-dense foods. They're one of the most affordable. They're really easy to eat. You know, get them in BPA-free cans, throw them on um, salad a couple times a week. But also they're really small. And that means that their mercury load is going to be the least of any of the fish because fish accumulate mercury by eating other fish. That's why whales have the most mercury. And even if you go down to the anchovies, they have the least. I like to prioritize fish by only eating the cold water fatty fish, which have the best nutrition, and then eating the smallest ones. And they also happen to be the cheapest. I think they taste good. A lot of people disagree, but you can uh, figure that out for yourselves. <laughs> so the quality really matters with meat, um, with seafood. And then with produce, we don't wanna eat conventional produce because of the pesticides. You know, you don't wanna be eating the pesticides. But there's another reason that I want you guys to consider, and that's that plants actually develop more nutrients and more phytonutrients, especially when they're grown organically, because pesticides mean that the plant doesn't have to defend itself as much from its environment. And when a plant has to defend itself, it creates phytonutrients. Phytonutrients are its natural defense mechanisms. So by eating organic produce, our produce is actually gonna have more of those phytonutrients and then we get passed on that benefit. So it's another angle to the organic side of things. The next thing is eating local and in season. So eating in season is important because like organic or non-organic, you know, the pesticide issue with the plants, when you eat a plant in season, it's come to its biological peak of the growing se season when it's supposed to. So when we, we have all these tricks in modern farming to get asparagus to grow in November, I don't know how they do it. It's not right. If you've, if you've eaten asparagus in November, you might have regretted it and been like, what does this taste like? It doesn't taste like anything. That's your taste buds telling you something. I actually think we have a lot of innate wisdom in being able to tell when a food is nutrient dense and when it is in the season. Because when you go to the farmer's market and you eat berries that are just fresh picked that day in season, they taste 
10 times, sometimes even 100 times better than whatever you buy in the grocery store in the wrong time of year. And there's actually studies showing that the nutrient content is a lot higher for a variety of reasons. So one of them is just the time that it takes the food to get to your plate. So, you know, we do crazy things like farm food halfway around the world and pick things unripe, which is actually a problem because when when we're picking produce and, and fruits that are not ripe yet, those plants have not had time to give all the nutrients to that reproductive piece of their, you know, what they're trying to create, right? So, you know, you pick, they pick a kiwi and the kiwi is like half ripe. It, it could have had more time to actually draw all those nutrients out of the plant, draw the nutrients out of the soil. Then it gets thrown on a plane, sometimes chemically ripened by the time it ends up in the grocery store. <laughs> you know, there's not much left there for you. So having something that's close and, and part of that is just convenience, you know, going to the farmer's market where the farmer has maybe dug stuff up that week or, you know, even that day is going to ensure that you're getting the maximum amount of nutrient density that that plant has to offer you. Something else is, is the seasonality, which I talked about, you know, we can, our taste buds can tell when we buy something in the wrong time of year. Um, but they actually have done studies and shown that things like broccoli have up to 50% less vitamin C in the wrong season. And it's, it's because it's biology, right? Like the plants are supposed to be trying to flower and trying to, you know, produce their seed at, at a certain time. And when you trick that, um, yeah, we, it's food and we use it, but it's not ideal. So go to the farmer's market. If you can't afford the price of the farmer's market, go to, you know, whatever your local store is. And a great thing for anyone on a budget is that seasonal foods are usually the ones that are on sale, right? So eat a lot of whatever's in season. Like right now, asparagus tastes awesome. Throw lots of asparagus in your cart. I'm eating like two or three bundles between my husband and I a week just because asparagus has such a short season. It is an extremely nutrient-dense food, but I don't like how it tastes and it just doesn't really work for me outside of the natural growing season. So for the next six weeks, I'm going to be on an asparagus kick. And then whatever the next thing is, you know, like radishes are right good right now. I don't know if you guys are into radishes, but I just like eat them straight and they're amazing. And that that flavor, you know, listen to your taste buds, get really excited about it. So the local and in-season piece is really important. The last thing that I wanna tell you guys about is variety. So we eat chicken more than anything else protein-wise in this country. We eat it 20 times more than beef and we eat chicken and beef 200 times more than seafood, which is really interesting because seafood, so fish and shellfish are actually the most nutrient-dense foods, back to our spectrum, and chicken is actually the least nutrient-dense food. Like if I had to create a pyramid of like what we should be eating the most of, it's probably the most fish, although fish is tricky with sustainability these days. But if you're eating the small fish, it changes things, so, um, so go for the small fish. But even within those categories, fish has the greatest opportunity for diversity. Whenever you're going for diversity, you're getting some new nutrients. So even though um, you know, not all fish are created equal when it comes to nutrient density, each fish is gonna bring a different type of nutrient to the spectrum. Shellfish, crustaceans are gonna have some different things. And so every time you do something different, you're gonna be getting something different out of it. Red meat, you know, it's not just beef. Bison is now available in a lot of stores. Lamb, goat, you know, you can branch out. You don't need to do it every day, but like maybe once or twice a month, branch out and get a different red meat protein and see what you like. I've got a few recipes in the book like that. And then chicken, you know, again, that's not the only bird that we eat in this country. You know, you can try duck. The duck fat is amazing 
you guys like duck fat, use it to roast your, your um, root vegetables in the fall. It'll blow your mind. Duck is awesome. You can also try goose, pheasant, quail. Of course there's turkey. So, you know, it's not just chicken. So I want you guys to think about branching out a little bit nutrient density wise and, um, and try to eat some different foods. So that's four ways anybody, no matter how you guys eat, you can eat like a Nutrivore and you can tell your family, tell your friends, because it's, it's an important concept. I think a lot of the future of you know, our health depends on it. I think we, we had a lot of really good food practices ancestrally and we've gotten away from those mostly because we're more in- interested in convenience than actually sourcing food, raising food, cooking food. It, there's a lot of labor involved. But what I've tried to do with my book is teach you guys why you should go for this and then give you a collection of recipes that just make it really easy. So I'm going to talk about that part now. How many of you guys have an instant pot? Okay. A lot of you guys, this, if you guys have an instant pot, this book is like two books in one because any recipe that can be made in an instant pot has a second set of instructions. So if you don't have one, you don't need one, but if you do have one, you can cut the cooking time in half and make it. So there's a lot of instant pot recipes. There's a lot of one pot recipes. So a lot of times cooking a million different dishes and then having to clean everything up is like a nightmare, especially on a weeknight. Um, There's a chart in the back that helps you guys identify all of the recipes that can be made in an instant pot, can be made in one pot, so the cleanup is really easy. And then also recipes that only take 45 minutes or less to complete, so perfect for weeknights. I'm a big fan of batch cooking, um, which means spending maybe a few hours um, once or twice a week. I, I tend to do twice a week with a little bit less time, but in the past I've done once a week with more time, so like five hours. And I'll cook as many things as I can. At the same time, I'll max out my stove, maybe have like three things on the stove and two or three things in the stove in the oven, and then make a salad. And then I will have everything prepped and ready for the week so that I get to cook as little as possible. I just reheat and go, throw a garnish on. It makes it really convenient and easy. If you're interested in batch cooking, check out the meal plans. I have five of them. So I have two seasonal ones. So like we are talking, seasonality is really important. So I have a fall winter one with those veggies and spring summer. Um, I have a budget meal plan for anyone who's looking to save money. I have a Nutrivore meal plan, which is geared towards people who are not afraid of shellfish and organ meat and just wanna go on a healing nutrient vendor for like two weeks. Definitely try that meal plan. And then the last one is for two people. So I get a lot of couples that want to do it together and all of the meal plans call for cooking only on weekends and nights. So you guys don't have to do any cooking for breakfast and lunch. And on the one person meal plans about three nights a week, you also have off, which is pretty handy. And for anyone that's sensitive to like extra things, low FODMAPs, um, coconut, or is doing a low carb diet, um, in the instance of low carb, I have net carbs listed for all the low carb recipes. There's a chart in the back. So I've tried to remove basically every barrier that you guys could possibly have to figuring out how to implement a nutrient dense way of cooking in your kitchen. And if you're interested in trying some of these nutrient dense foods, the way that I've designed the recipe, I have a lot of recipes for really common nutrient-dense foods that I know a lot of you will love. But for certain things like the liver or clams, I've introduced you in a gentle way. So if you see the clam recipe, know that that's the way that if I really know I don't like clams, Mickey thinks I'm going to have the best chance of liking it if I try it this way. So that was my goal in, um, in writing all the recipes. So yeah, that's it. If you guys have any questions, I would be happy to answer them. I would just say I'm not a doctor. 
So please don't ask me medical questions. But anything else? Homesteading, self-publishing, nutrient density. I'm only curious if you could talk more about your process of like creating recipes hmm. and like what what inspires you and and how you approach that. Interesting. So awesome question that I don't get answered very often. So I approach recipe development in a in a way that I think a lot of people think don't think is intuitive. But basically, what I'm trying to do is fill a gap where maybe so everybody wants recipes that are quick one pot possible in the instant pot but don't have to be made in the instant pot have all the elements of nutrient density so like bone broth you know some vegetables um, something fresh for like vitamin c and then like a nutrient dense protein so i think basically the bigger picture like how am i going to add all of these elements in and, and make this puzzle you know and sometimes i'll have like an ingredient that i'm like okay clams like i just need to figure out a way that's going to make clams approachable or liver approachable and so that might be a little a different project but most of them I think okay how do I want to do this what ingredients you know what players do I want um, and then like how do I fit them all together as a puzzle and then have all of those elements so that they're one pot and all the things I don't I have I have a family history of um, my grandfather is a rheumatologist so he studies autoimmune disease <laughs> but but no um, I don't which is weird but you know, it happens. He he's skeptic, for sure. Still. Yeah, yeah. We watched Terry Walls together, and, and she's an MD, and I thought she was my chance, but, you know, he still was like, I don't know about this. But he's 91, so, um, you know. What did you say you Terry Walls. She's the doctor with MS that um, had secondary progressive MS. If anyone here has MS, definitely check out her TED Talk. She's incredible. Yeah. Let's say that... Somebody needs an intro to liver. Like, yeah. How do you feel about chicken liver? Yeah. So there's a great chicken liver recipe in this book, um, chicken liver mousse. And I use pureed apple. So I, I cook the apple and then you puree everything together. I actually think it's a little milder than the beef liver. I don't love beef liver. I do not love liver. This is the thing. So if I can eat liver, I eat it every couple weeks because it makes me feel really good. I only eat it early in the day because it's like a battery. And if I do it too late in the day, I actually won't even sleep. <laughs> so. So, um, yeah, it has a lot of B vitamins in it. I mean, that's what they put in energy drinks now, along with the caffeine and the B vitamins. Um, liver is really high in iron and zinc and B vitamins. So, yeah, even the pate is too much for you. You can hide liver from yourself in other dishes. So one of my favorite tricks is to freeze the liver for like maybe 20 minutes. So don't let it get fully frozen, and then use a shredder bl blade on a food processor to shred the liver, and then put it in ice cube trays, freeze everything again, and then pop them out, put them in a, like a Ziploc or some storage container. And then every time you use ground meat, so ground beef, ground pork, whatever, throw in a cube or two of the liver, and then you're upping the nutrient density of whatever ground meat you're using, and you're not gonna taste it unless you're, you know, psych yourself out. Um, I know a lot of people that do this with their kids, with their spouses, and most of the time nobody can tell. So um, if you gotta hide it from yourself, that's totally acceptable. Sneaky nutrient density is still nutrient density. So I'm all about starting where you're at, taking the next step, 
you don't have to jump into the deep end. Like liver for you might be your deep end. For other people here, it might be the, their next step. But you might be, like if you're at chicken on the bone, start there and then save those bones and use them for broth and then use that broth in your cooking. That's a step in the right direction. Something about liver though that I do want to say is that a lot of people get worried that it is has a lot of toxins in it because it filters the toxins. The liver actually it doesn't store toxins. It puts them in the fat. So we don't really think twice with like a ribeye or like a pork chop, right? We're eating all that delicious fat. Um, that's where the animal stores the toxins. So it's another reason why you want to get high quality meat because the quality of that fat, if the animals are raised on pasture, they're not going to be encountering the same things that if they're just eating some random, you know, commercial food or whatever. So the liver also contains the nutrients that your liver needs to process toxins. I actually, yeah, I think that not eating liver is, you know, more toxic potential than actually eating it. So I just have, um, I haven't heard you talk, like use the word superfood or anything like yeah. that. And I feel like that's very intentional. Like you're kind yeah. of, and I think that there's some things that you talked about that speak to that, like, you know, the nuances, the seasonality and like all these different things, not all blueberries are the same or whatever, but could you talk about like kind of the difference if there's one, yeah. Yeah, I mean, superfood is just a marketing word. It's yeah. it's like all the goji berry companies and the acai berry companies, you know, they find some high phytonutrient plants in some far off land and then they try to convince Americans that it's the missing piece of their diet and, you know, they have the juice or the powder or whatever and it's the thing that's going to cure you or whatever. So it's marketing. Superfood isn't regulated. Not all things that are marketed as superfoods are bad and actually a lot of them are very nutrient-dense foods, but spending $20 for a bag of acai powder instead of, you know, three pounds of beef liver, I'm kind of like the superfood value of the liver is going to give you a lot more bang for your buck. Um, and also, there actually are some studies that show that going too far with the antioxidants is a problem. So physiologically, you know, there's been a lot of studies on really high-dose antioxidant supplementation. And for people with autoimmune disease, sometimes it can cause our autoimmune diseases to ramp up, become more aggressive. So some people get flares um, from, from certain things. And, and so, you know... I don't like being the person that's like, oh, moderation, but like really like a lot of plant foods are great. You know, kale's great, but like juicing it is probably not the best idea. You know, that's not really what nature intended. It intended to have the fiber slow everything down, digest it properly. And um, yeah, so superfoods, yeah, I don't, I don't use that word. And um, I don't think it really accurately reflects anything concrete. And if I got to pick the superfoods, they would be organ meats, fatty cold water fish, bone broth, really colorful fruits and vegetables, which the fruits are the ones that are actually marketed as superfoods, but those kind of things. So hopefully that helps. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about mushrooms? Yeah, so um, mushrooms are actually not plants, um, which, which are awesome. They're actually most like us than, than any plant, like a million times closer to us. They're amazing and as far as fiber, um, as far as the immune modulating capabilities. The texture and the flavor is just incredible. So yeah, if you guys like mushrooms, edible fungi, go for it. And there's a lot of research being done. Um, we used to think as far as autoimmune disease that they were a little more immune stimulating, so a little bit more problematic for people. But um, really recent research has shown that they're a little more modulating, which means they, they balance the immune system, which is really interesting for someone like me. We don't know a lot yet, but um, 
yeah, they're awesome. And I use them in the book. Thank you guys so much for coming out. Many thanks to Mickey Trescott for joining us at Book Larder. Remember, you can get 10% off the Nutrient Dense Kitchen and any other books featured on the Book Larder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code podcast at checkout. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including upcoming author talks, cooking classes, or to join our monthly email newsletter, visit BookLarder.com. If you find yourself in Seattle, please visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Lara Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.